0: Well, before we open with uh, prayer, I, I definitely want to thank the elders, Pastor Lynn, and Pastor Emilio for the opportunity to teach sunday school it 's something that 's certainly not to be taken lightly, and so i 'm thankful for that and For the rest of you, you guys were warned two weeks ago that I was going to be teaching, so and you still decided to be here. Some of you, I know may have forgot, but um, yeah, here you are so what 's that that 's right. <laughs> let 's go ahead and uh, let 's go ahead and pray, and then we 'll jump in, heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you uh, for the time that we have to gather together on your day uh, to hear your word taught, uh, to hear your word preached, to fellowship with one another, and Lord, to learn of you. Father, would your spirit be with us? Would you guide us? Would you give us greater insight into the sonship of God as we consider uh, this particular topic over these next two weeks, Lord, we ask. Uh, that your spirit would be present, and that you would be glorified. In your name, amen. Okay, so as you heard, we're going to go ahead, we're going to walk through the sonship of God. Um, We're going to keep on the theme, the the theme of practical theology related to the Trinity. And so this topic will be looked at over the next two weeks. Uh, The importance of growing in a topic like this likely goes without saying but if you would, please turn with me to Ephesians one three, so we can see from the scriptures why this is important. Ephesians one three, we read this: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now we'll be in Ephesians one a, a couple different times uh, this more or this afternoon, but. What we see here in these verses, as well as many others that use the phrase, in Christ or in Him, is that every spiritual blessing we have comes from our communion with the Son of God. Therefore, it is important to understand that our relationship to or with God depends on our position with Christ. Either we are in Christ or we're outside of Christ and therefore God's enemy. In fact, Bavink says this, and considering of all the benefits that are ours based on Christ's work, he says this, "For this reason, there is no participation in his benefits except by communion with his person." And so in order to have communion with his person, we must commune with him through his word and see Christ on the pages of Scripture and also understand his role and work. And otherwise, in other words, we must understand the sonship of God. And so to do this, we will look at the following areas this morning. That God is Son, or God is Son in both Testaments, or the, uh, the Sonship of God in both Testaments. Uh, the Son's role is distinguished from the Father in redemption. We'll look at the Son's relationship to the Father, and then the Son and the Spirit briefly. So first up is God is Son, or the Sonship of God in both, uh, both Testaments. This is different having to write up here, that's for sure. And in order to do this, we'll look at three areas. But first, St. Augustine says this, the old is in the new revealed, and the new is in the old concealed. And I believe that's true. We must understand that all of Scripture from beginning to end is ultimately a progressive revelation of the covenant of redemption. That is, the plan that was agreed upon in eternity past is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture progressively. So there's more light in the New Testament to these things than than in the Old, and the New sheds light on what we see in the Old. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us to see Christ in various ways and in various manners on the pages of the Old Testament, because ultimately all Scripture points to him. Now, the pictures or appearances of Christ in the Old Testament may not be as clear, right, as what we see. I don't think any of us would dispute the Son of God in the New Testament. But where do we see Him and how do we see Him in the Old Testament? And so we'll look at three areas. First up is the types and shadows. Does anybody know various types and shadows or anything come to mind? I have three or four because we're probably all very familiar with this, but anybody know a type or shadow of Christ in the Old Testament? Go ahead. Moses. Moses. Okay, I have that one. So that's, I'm not even going to write that. Moses. Melchizedek, because he's a priest. David. And so there are, like Melchizedek, we read in Hebrews 7, three. he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And Hebrews 7.17 says this, For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, not to get too deeply into it, but generally the line of the priesthood was, it, it's, it was Levitical, right? It was from descent, whereas the order of, of Melchizedek would be not from descent, And as you said, Moses, we see him as a deliverer out of Egypt, a mediator of the old covenant, intercessor on behalf of Israel. Think of the number of times you see in Scripture where the people actually say, no, 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 you go speak to him on our behalf. How about Joshua leading Israel into the promised land? A picture of Christ ultimately leading us into the true promised land through his work? Yes. So, okay, when you say shadows, like, that's in reference to people, doesn't have to be. Uh, There's many other. I mean, you had mentioned Passover. Um, The tabernacle was actually after a pattern of what was in heaven. So it's not just people. Um, But in this case, because we're talking specifically uh, the sonship of God, I'm I'm focusing more on the the people. Um, David as king, but not just as king. Think of the life that David lived, a very persecuted life, a very challenging life where his life was being sought and there was much trial and tribulation. What's that? Right. And then ultimately, the offices of prophet, priest, and king, right? Point two, the true prophet, priest, and king in Christ where he fulfills all three offices. The second way is prophetic proclamation. So in this heading, you know, I have in mind, I'm sorry about the writing. This is terrible, but... I have I, in my mind... Uh, psalms obviously the uh, prophets and so forth even deuteronomy 18 we're familiar with that verse about god will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers right there are many places that we can go to but um, i want to you know consider psalm 22 we know the whole of this psalm ultimately points to christ but many back then wouldn't necessarily have understood it that way per se And yet, as we heard last week, Christ is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we are told that it was surely the fact of what he was undergoing, no doubt, right? Undergoing uh, the wrath of God. But even dying on the cross, what he's ultimately doing, these people would have known the scriptures, studied the scriptures, and what he's ultimately doing is saying, go back and read that psalm and look at what I am going through. This psalm was speaking of me. I am him who was to come. So even on the cross, what we see is Christ fulfilling um, his duty in caring for people's souls and pointing them back to things that reference him. Uh, psalm thirty-four, twenty-two. if you guys want to turn there. So right before this, There's a verse that we fully recognize as referring to Christ. It's actually in verse 20. It says, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That we know is Christ. But verse 22 says this, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. And we'll get into this a little bit, but whose work is redemption ultimately? Okay. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, the last part of this verse, what New Testament verse do you think of when you read and those who take refuge... And none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Romans 8, yeah. Romans eight one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so you see here shades of Romans eight eight Romans 8, one in this psalm. Let's go ahead and turn to Second Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve through sixteen. Second Samuel 7, 12 through 16. Now, if you remember, this is where we're the, the establishment of the Davidic covenant is taking place. Anybody want to read 12 through 16? Robert, go ahead. through sixteen. You but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Alright, and so what we see here, there's ultimately like a twofold fulfillment, right? There's Solomon, who is going to be David's son, through who the, the the line of the kings would continue. But ultimately what we actually have here is greater revelation of who Christ was to descend from, right? Ultimately, through the Davidic line, um, and that we see a picture of a father-son relationship taking place. What else do we? What other characteristics do we see in this verse, specifically related to His kingdom? It's established forever. That's right. There's no end. So who else could that be other than the Son of God? Because we're very aware of the fact that we all die, right? That's even what is referenced in Acts, where he says, well, David died and his tomb is with us. So clearly, it has to refer to somebody who is eternal, which is the Son of God. And we see this picture, and if you notice, Matthew starts off his genealogy with identifying Jesus descended from David. Because writing to a heavy Jewish population... That's the focus is, look, it said that it would come from the Davidic line. Christ came from the Davidic line. Romans 1, 1 through 1-4 says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Then what does it say? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so you see the tie-in here that when the covenant was established, he would be of the line of David, his kingdom would last forever. And to have an everlasting kingdom, you must be able to reign everlasting forever, for all of eternity, and that alone is the Son of God. That was Romans 1, 1 through 4. Daniel 7, 13-14, if we want to turn there. Remember, this is all under the heading. If you can read it, I'll remind you. It's prophetic proclamation. So these, these pictures, ultimately, of the one who was to come, prophesied from long ago. Anybody want to read Daniel 7, 13-14? Go ahead. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen. And so we see similar language here, right? This is a very, I mean, Daniel's a very challenging book to Understand and so forth. But what we certainly see here is similar language, a kingdom that will have no end. Uh, And we see a reference to the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 64. And Jesus said, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man. So he's referring to himself in the same way. Even as we, if you remember from Mark Jones's book, he even said that Christ himself referenced you know, called himself the Son of Man more than a hundred times. And he says this, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So a true picture of the Son in the Old Testament. And the third way um, is actual appearances that we would see in uh, the Old Testament. Uh, These appearances could be... um, a physical like appearance like the the men that appeared to Abraham um and then ultimately brought judgment upon uh, Sodom and Gomorrah yes now, those would be the right would, or would that be the word no. uh, would it be a the I'm I'm not I'm unsettled on where I stand on that um be a Christophany yeah and then the men with him were other angels um But what we do see is, and even this was brought out in the men's study this last week, was you have Lord in heaven and Lord on earth and the raining down fire and and, and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Where do we first see the sun in the Old Testament? Genesis what? One? Okay. (laughs) That's true, right? In creation... Uh, where it says you see God speaking all things into being. Um, uh, him speaking and, and, and it happening, right? And what do we see in the New Testament which testifies that helps us to identify that this is the Son? That's right. So Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John 1.1, 1, 1, like you said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Hebrews one two as well, But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there's no disputing that. But we see, even at the very beginning of Scripture, the triune God working. We see um, in the call of Moses, in the call of Gideon, um, uh, we see it in uh, the angel of the Lord also with um, uh, Balaam uh, in the donkey. We see it with Joshua in particular. Um, where Joshua in in chapter 5, verse 13 through the beginning of chapter 6, ultimately sees a man standing before him with a sword in his hand. Um, He identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. And then what does Joshua do? He falls on his face and worships, and he's not rebuked for it. So let's be very clear. Not all appearances of the angel of the Lord are necessarily Christ. Um, Generally, you would distinguish by maybe the article beforehand um, that would generally help as far as the angel versus an angel. Um, but even then, you want to look at the context. What is being done? Because when you look in Revelation and John bows before the angel, what does the angel say? Do not do that, right? So it's very clear. Um, and so when you see Joshua worshiping, or in First Chronicles, David with the, the angel of the Lord standing there with, again, a sword, right? Between heaven and earth, right? And David falls on his face. So these are the various ways uh, from like an angel of the Lord perspective. The other one I want to look at is Exodus 14, 19 through 28, if we could turn there. This is in reference to the pillar in the cloud. In these verses, um, verse 19, we read this. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. So just, we understand what's going on, right? They've fled Egypt. They come up to the sea, right? And they're crossing the sea. And we see here that the, the pillar of cloud moved from before them to now standing between them and Egypt right? In a sense, we see Christ standing in the gap between those who were chasing him and his people. And in verse 24, we see the following. It says, "...and in the morning the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariots, uh, their wheels, and they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." So we see here the pillar and cloud uh, fighting for them causing confusion on the Egyptian forces and then finally in verse 27 we see so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the sea when the morning appeared and the Egyptian forces or the Egyptians fled into it and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. So we see even there a picture of Christ bringing judgment even upon the Egyptians. And to gain an understanding, Jude provides a little bit of insight in Jude verse 5. He says, no, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so you see that it was Christ who saved them out of Egypt. Um, If we could real quick, in reference to this too, um, I came across this yesterday, Psalm 78. If we could turn there and look at verses 13 through 16. Anybody like to read verses thirteen through sixteen? Chris, you got that? Okay. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. Then he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean steps. Mm. That's right, and so to gain some insight into this, because it says he and who did this, the splitting of the rock, the providing of water, right, for them to drink. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the clouds. We just talked about the pillar and cloud, right? "And And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And how does he identify this? He says, and the rock was Christ. So through and through what we see ultimately is Christ being with his people, even in the Old Testament. Um, Through and through we see Christ on the pages of the Old Testament. Um, And that should be encouraging, because sometimes I think that we can look at the Old Testament and be like, I'm not jumping into that prophet. Like, you know, I want to stick to the New Testament or I'm not going to go through the book of Leviticus because it's just laws and purification and so forth. Right. But to understand that through and through all the pages of Scripture reference and point to Christ. Okay, the second point is the son's role in redemption as distinguished from the father. So that's that's a lot. Right. Um, I'm just going to call it son's role in redemption. And I think the way I want to kind of ultimately write this out is we have the Father, right? And we're going to talk about a little bit about his role. We're going to look at the Son and then a little bit of the Holy Spirit. Um, that'll come in another couple of weeks uh, from from Pastor uh, Lynn. And considering this, you know, the Son's role as it relates to redemption and then distinguishing it from the Father or even the Spirit's Uh, role Uh, we have to do it or consider at least the covenant of of redemption right that's ultimately where it starts Um, and the overarching summary of this covenant is that the father initiates or sins the son procures and the spirit applies and what we must understand is that each person of the trinity has a role that's appropriate to themselves that's specific to themselves And so, what we ultimately see, at least the way I kind of look at it, is we have the plan uh, from the Father, it goes through the Son, and then by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the way that this ultimately then plays out in reality, like day to day, right, is we know that ultimately salvation comes by the Spirit through the Son, then to the Father where we have communion with Him. Okay? Now, let's go ahead, let's turn back to Ephesians 1, because, like I said, we're going to spend a little bit of time. Uh, in there. So, what are the, what do we see as it relates to father and son and their roles? So, first, we'll start with the father. Uh, Lethem in his book on the Holy Trinity, which I would highly recommend. It is about five hundred pages, and if that intimidates you, I would say read the first eighty six and the last one hundred and fifty. Okay, because what you have in the middle is a bunch of history of the. The stuff that was going on in the establishment of the doctrine and things of that nature. But if you want a great breakdown on the Trinity, highly recommend uh, about, I recommend all of it if you have the time, but definitely about 240 pages or so of it. But he states this, the Father is the origin of all the blessings that we receive in Christ. And so like I said, we see this in Ephesians 1, we considered this as we opened um, Ephesians one three says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So as we said earlier, one, he's the source um, of uh I'll call it all, and we'll just spiritual blessings, okay? Um <clears throat> from him proceed, he's he's the one that we then read in uh verses four and five even as He chose us. So the Father was the one who what? Chose, or predestined, or elected, right? Uh, and that's So it says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then we see again, in love, He predestined us for adoptions as, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And so what we also see, as far as the Father's role, is He is the one Uh, who chooses, um, you know, predestines, um, and uh, elects. As far as it relates to this covenant of redemption, right? He said, these are the people who are going to be yours, right? He's made the choice. It's according to his will. Um, in verse 11, we read, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we clearly see that it's the Father's work or the Father's role to be the one that chooses, predestines, elects, the one who gives all the blessings in his Son. What else does he do that we see Scripture says? Anybody have any thoughts on what else he does? How about him sending the son? Is he the one that sends the son? So he sends the son. um, And then what else does he do with the son as far as in relation to the son? He rewards upon completion, right? He's ultimately exalted. But ultimately, what we know is that he gives the son a work to do. It wasn't just go, right? There was a specific work, and we see Christ reference this. So... um, Yeah, he commissions, uh, gives uh, work to do, okay? And that's what we see. John 5.30 says this, um, Christ speaking, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So according to the Father's will, the Son has come, and he seeks to complete that will, to do that will. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, and then finally, in His great high priestly prayer in John seventeen four, He says, "I glorified You on earth, having accomplished what." That That's me. right. The work that You gave me to do. I also like from the cross. He cried out. He is finished. Mm. It's, it's been completed, right? He, he completed that work through and through, not just in in coming and not just in obedience. And not just even on the cross, right? In the sense of, okay, he was on there, and right? But even through and through, he completed that work by conquering sin and death ultimately, right? And so now we'll look at the son. What was the son's role in redemption? To save all whom the Father had given him. That's right. So that's like the overarching. If you could summarize, like, what is the son's role? It's, it was to save people from their sins. That's even what his name means. That's what Jesus means, right? He will save his people from their sins, right? So that's the. So we see um, the work of salvation is his. Um, Let's see here. I want to look at this under three headings specifically, because it is true. This is the overarching. He had a a work um, to complete, which was ultimately to bring salvation. But I want to look at it under three headings. First, uh the what we could call the covenant uh servant uh mediator and that's what we like what we do we make really long confusing titles um but ultimately here's here's what we see he's the servant of the covenant because he's the one that had to fulfill its obligations There was covenant obligations to fulfill. He was the servant. We see that throughout the pages of Old Testament for sure about him even being, what's it called in Isaiah 53? What's he referred to? The suffering servant, right? Um, And he's the mediator of the covenant. Why? Why is he the mediator? He's the representative, but... That's right, and it's in his blood. What does he even say when he institutes the Lord's Supper? He says, this is a new covenant in my blood. And that's what we see in Matthew 26. Uh, For this is is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Would he also be considered the covenant keeper? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't keep the covenant, Jesus does yeah there's no we don't gain any righteousness um and in fact we're only in the covenant or made right because of his work um and we'll get a little bit more into that i'll explain that a little bit further lord willing here in in a little bit um but hebrews nine fifteen says this therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant so the only reason that we're even in the second covenant or viewed right before God is because of his mediatorial work, right? Yes. Mm. That's right. Like it's only through him, right? That's a good point. The second way I want to look at this is his obedience in the incarnation. And this is key, right? Um um, I'll just, incarnation. this is terrible but this is key because it's one thing to like how many times have we said oh we're going to do this right and then push comes to shove and we're like i don't i don't know if i'm going to do that right but when it comes down to it to think that um he willingly came we read in in um this in a sense is his first work if you will him coming in um, human flesh, human likeness. Um, But we read in Galatians 4, 6, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So that's where we see again, he sends the son, he sends him forth in the fullness of time at the right time, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so at the right time, the father sends the son. And what does the son do? He willingly submits and obeys to coming in the form of a servant, in human likeness. There was no contemplation like we would have of, okay, I'm going to go do this, and it's kind of half-hearted, or should we or should we not? But we know that the Son always did the things that were pleasing to the Father, even in his incarnation. Hebrews 10, 5-9 says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Speaking even of like Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, right? Those weren't sufficient for the removal of sin. Those couldn't cleanse the conscience, right? Um, But a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings... These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And so you see there's an obedience in the incarnation. And and that's why I make that comparison of, when we say we're going to do something, we should most certainly let our yes be yes and our no be no. But we know the struggle and the battle that takes place when it really comes time to do what we said we were going to do, right? There was not that struggle with Christ. And you go Yeah. That's right. And so we will touch on that as well, Lord willing. But we, we're all very familiar with Philippians 2, 5-7, through 7, right? Um, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now this is a verse, right, that's like we're all very familiar with, but don't let the familiarity that we have miss what's at, like cause us to miss what's being actually done here. Um, we have the Son of God in all of his glory willingly submitting to the Father in a sense and um, not um, laying claim to what was rightfully his, right? And, and and then coming in the likeness of human flesh to save those who were his enemies. It wasn't, I'm going to go do this for my friends and give of myself for my friends. He laid all of those things aside to save his enemies. And finally, or not, uh, finally, yep, finally, his obedience in his life and death. So, um, was it sufficient um, that he merely... Uh, you know, come and, 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 and be made uh, or come in human likeness in the form of a servant, was that sufficient enough? No, right? What was needed? His death, but what else before that was needed? That's right. He had to do the first work in a sense that the first Adam did not do, right? The first Adam failed and, and sinned and transgressed. And so what we needed was one who could come to fulfill the law, to fulfill all righteousness. He had to live a complete life of obedience. It wasn't just a half or a partial, right? The whole of his life needed to be obedient. Um, And ultimately, you're right, he had to become obedient to death, even death on a cross, right? And so there's a number of passages that testify to this. Uh, Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. And the glorious thing about this, we know that he fulfilled them to the utmost, right? We read in Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, a side note um, that I was thinking about is it's not the end of the law, okay? In, in that sense. There is st- we're still to obey we're still to seek to, to honor him and glorify him and walk according to his commandments, right? So it's not antinomian, there is no law. But what is, the, what is the end of the law for what? For righteousness. We cannot be saved by the law. There's no righteousness that comes through the law. That's been accomplished by Christ. But it does not mean that there is no law. And in his life, as we just discussed, he was not exempt from suffering. Um, we read in Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, there's another picture even of creation, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 5.8-9, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And finally, in Philippians 2.8, in finishing the verses we read earlier, we see this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think of this ultimate submission and obedience to the Father's will. Uh, Three times in the garden right? You're just referencing this, the agony, right? Uh, Three times in the garden, we see Christ praying that if it's possible, if there be any other way to let the cup pass, how many of us would follow up that prayer with, not your will, or not my will, but yours be done? Even in the hardest trials of this life, we have a tough time, I think if we're honest, ultimately submitting to his will and what he has for us. And yet Christ sets the highest example, and even more so than just praying that, ultimately fulfilling that, right? On the cross, going through, setting his face, as it were, to the cross, and there was no way he was turning to right or left. It wasn't happening. So we see that the Son's work was to provide the way for people to be saved, uh, that is to bring about forgiveness, right? So sins, expiation, which is what? Removal of, removal, of the wrath of God. removal of guilt. And propitiation is ultimately the satisfaction of his wrath, right? In other words, it was the son's work to take on the wrath of the father while it was the father's work to pour out that wrath until it was satisfied. That's ultimately, when we think about what Christ came to do in accomplishing salvation, it was ultimately, yes, fulfill the law, right, Uh, fulfill all righteousness. But at the end of the day, there still had to be a sacrifice. At the end of the day, he still had to give himself and take the wrath that we rightfully deserve. And so what we see through all of Christ's obedience and death is that he is the true covenant sacrifice, We can look back at the types and shadows that we pointed out over here and all the proclamations and and the appearances in the Old Testament and the types and and so forth, right? And the sacrifices of the Old uh, Covenant, knowing that they ultimately point to Christ, who was the final sacrifice, the better sacrifice. And I like this. um, It's it's essentially a reference to a, a verse in Hebrews, but it says this. But here in the New Covenant, we have the better sacrifice that is in His blood, a sacrifice that secures eternal redemption. And that word secure is key because when we consider like the work of the Spirit, um, maybe next week, is th- this aspect of Him applying, Him securing, Him being our guarantee. Yes? So it could be said that like every covenant or every sacrificial covenant, um, they're all, they're all, all the covenants are... are Bound in blood, right? Sovereignly administered, we learned. So all of those could be types and shadows of Christ ultimately, right? The ones that we see progressively through Scripture, all of them really are, right? Shadows of Christ. Um, yeah, I think in some form. Um, I'm thinking of when Emilio had up on the screen, he had all the covenants, right? And all the lines of where they connected and so forth. And ultimately, yes, it all drives to the new covenant. Um, progressively, we're, you know, um, ultimately there's always one covenant kind of like stems all the way through, right? Which is the covenant of redemption that overarches that, and it all leads um, to this new covenant in Christ's blood. Okay, the, the third, uh, I'll do it over here. The third one is uh, the son's uh, relationship. To or uh, with uh, the Father. What we see here, <clears throat> what does Scripture ultimately teach us on this? I have f- four headings that we'll probably briefly move through. Um, can any of you think of how you would describe the Son's relationship with the Father? Submission? Submission? I like, yeah. Um I won't. This is. I'll just write it here. So submission. This is post covenant redemption. Excuse me. Post covenant redemption. As far as submission, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what I was going to ask. Ultimately, is is there submission or subordination in the Trinity? Go ahead. You're. I'm with you. No, in the ontological Trinity. And the ontological, that is in the very essence, right? They're all equal, same level, if you will, right? But in the economic, or another word for that is like the functional training, how they actually function or fulfill their roles, there is submission, you're right. There is subordination in that sense. We even see Christ say, the Father is greater than I. Now, we understand that when he says that, that's not up here where they're not equal, right? And there's subordination. It's in their role, he has submitted himself to the Father. Um. And so we see that in John fourteen twenty eight, you have heard me say to you, I am going away um, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Or John six thirty eight, I've come down from heaven not to do my Father's will, but the will of him who sent me. You see the submission to the Father's will um, uh, throughout scripture. So that's true. What is another uh, aspect of their relationship? Unity, you, go ahead. Did you ha- that's true. So that's going to be, I, I kind of have that ultimately, uh, you know, the, the love by, he says he keeps his, he, he loves his father. He keeps his commands, right? So there's uh, unity. Um, I call it love and uh, joy. And then the last one is that I've identified as one of glory. So unity is very clear, right? I and the Father are one, um, uh, and I John seventeen eleven. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have, uh, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. We are very, There's many scriptures that we're all probably familiar with. I have uh, one, two, three, four. Five, all from John <laughs> that basically reference the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing um, as the father has loved me so I have loved you abide in my love and the love that we see ultimately the submission that we see from an application standpoint is the perfect example of how we should submit to our heavenly father of how we should love one another all the one another's that we see in scripture Christ Christ is the perfect example of all of those things, and his glory there's his eternal glory in which we see john seventeen five and now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We get a glimpse of that glory in his pre incarnate state in Isaiah six um, How about glory his glory manifested through signs and miracles uh, John eleven fourteen says this, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness, this is about Lazarus, uh, does, uh, does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So you see both of them being glorified, even in the signs and miracles that are taking place. Uh, glory through his death. John twelve twenty eight says this, now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Um, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, this was like the, the, the climax of his work, right? Speaking of the, his, his death to come. Um, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Um, John thirteen thirty one. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And this particular verse is in reference to the upcoming crucifixion in which both he and his father would be glorified. Like, that seems impossible to us, right? Like, they're going to, it's like as if the people on this earth, the Pharisees, those who were mocking, right, were rejoicing. Oh, he's being put to death. But little do they know that ultimately this is where he and the father receive glory and we receive through Christ eternal life. And then finally, glory through intercession. Um, we see this in John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when we pray and we ask in His name, according to His will, the Son answers. We can know that He is going to answer according to His will, because He does all things ultimately to the glory of the Father, even now. And so we're probably going to have to stop there and go to worship. Um, next week, the plan is, Lord willing, to go through the Son and the Spirit briefly, a primer, because we'll get into that heavier the following two weeks with Pastor Lynn's teaching. And then we're going to look at some practical aspects of the Son in fellowship with his people. Um, and so that's what we'll work through uh, next week. But hopefully you find this helpful in the sense of, we see Christ on the pages Of scripture through and through it's not just a new testament where he's on the scene there and that's all we see of him um and hopefully through understanding more of his work the father's work kind of distinguishing who does what um is helpful as we study scripture and ultimately as we worship him so let's go to worship